Well, good morning, Bentree Church. Uh, as we get started here, uh, if you're new, we have little notes you can follow along in your program. And uh, it's got all the scripture that we'll uh, be covering in there. So you can make notes, kind of fill those in. Uh, I, I, I want to make sure that you give you time to be able to do that as we begin today. God has got some tremendous things for you. So as you get your Bible out and have that open on your lap, welcome to week two of our series, D3, Disciplers. Discipling disciples. You get that? Disciplers, discipling disciples. D3, this is not like any other series we've ever done. Uh, at least uh, it won't be when we're done. It represents a change in how we actually do church as a family. If you missed week one, go back and pick that up on a podcast uh, or you can go to the Bent Tree app on your phone or iPad. You can download that for free and listen to that. Uh, it's real important that you hear that uh, wherever you get podcasts. Last week we talked about the why, not so much the how. Uh, we talked about the why of doing things, uh, why we're going to do things the way we're going to do them uh, because we said last week if you know your why then it's easier to figure out your how like the physical things you have to do the the structure and so we're going to continue that this week on the why we'll get to a little bit of the how and then we'll talk about the things we're not going to do some of the things that don't work as well by the way our grow nights that are usually on Wednesday nights are on hold right now as we have lots of people working on Wednesday night, training, doing the thing, building D3. I'll talk more about that next week, and I'll tell you uh, more in a couple of weeks as well, specifics on that, but I just wanted you to, to know. Well, I'd like to set, set the stage for today by asking you a question uh, but it's a real question. It's not like a break the ice kind of question. It's not like if you were going to be a car, what kind of car you'd be. Uh, it's not that kind of question. It's, uh, it's a real question. It's going to require some thought uh, to answer it right away, uh, even in your head. But I want you to like in your heart, in the middle of you, uh, wait for the answer. Wait for it, wait for it, wait for the answer. And to be totally honest about this, uh, the answer may take you a while. It may take uh, a week or more. I'd like to have you take it uh, this least this week it may not come today is what I'm saying but it may uh, but maybe um, it'll come today the question although quite simple is not exactly easy to ask if that makes sense uh, but I'll see if I can say it as clearly as possible what if you succeed in life that's not it what if you succeed in life I mean you were wildly successful by any measure, but what if you succeed in life at something, but then in the end, it turns out not to matter? Like the thing you succeeded in really isn't the meaning you, uh, uh, meaningful to you or to anyone else for eternity. Like few people, maybe no person even remembers what you succeeded in or why you succeeded. And, and eternally, it made absolutely no difference. Now, when I was young, I, I would have listened to that kind of question. I thought, well, did I have fun? Did anybody else have, like when you're young, like, uh, did, was it fun? Did, did I uh, kind of get everything done on my bucket list? Like all the experiences I want to have in my life? Uh, or or did, did I feel 
at least kind of like have some fun. Uh, did it was there this modicum, if you will, of saying, I, I, I think I was happy. Maybe it was worth it. That's what I would have said when I was younger. But something started to change in my late 20s. Maybe it did for you. I had a job that was considered uh, by most people to be a very good career. And that job, my bosses gave me a kind of a steady diet of one-on-one coaching and, and, and conferences to go to and, and books to read. And I read books like crazy. And, and the message went like this. If you will sacrifice your time and your freedom today for the next few years and really be focused on building your career, you will be successful. And, and what that meant is there will be financial rewards like crazy. I like that. I like that. Like if you come early and you work 15, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Now I wasn't going to do that. I was going to work six because I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. I was going to take one day of rest. But they would say, when you're young, the financial rewards, if you trade off uh, what your time is now in hard work, you'll have this deep sense of accomplishment, this massive sense that, man, I made something of myself. You'll be able to retire at a moderately young age, and then you can enjoy the accomplishments, and really, really, you can start to live life. Your peers and your family will begin to look up to you, and you will make something significant out of your life. You can leave a legacy for your family, for your children, for your church. And I've got to tell you, I bought into this sales pitch hook, line, and sinker. I got up every day, seven days a week, 5 a.m., uh, Sundays for church, right? But I worked six days a week. I trained hard. I did what they said, and, and I had some success. I did. I, I had a good job, and that was before I had kids. BB and I were married early in our marriage, but I would get home about 9 10 o'clock, sometimes 11 o'clock, they add it again at 5 a.m. I'd do it again over and over. I was committed. And I had a really good attitude. I trained other people how to do this. I have a, a really big work ethic. But after a few years of this, after some success actually did kind of start to happen with me, something I wasn't expecting, expecting started to happen. And that was... I wasn't happy. I had this kind of burr in my saddle. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like things were all wrong. It's that there was something wrong inside me. I go, I, I'm supposed to be doing something else. I had this deep sense uh, of doing something significant with my life. I was a Christian. I was following Christ. But uh, the guys and girls that had really been successful in this career uh, for years and years, they had more money than they ever needed. I'm talking some serious cash laid away. And something seemed to happen with them across the board, not all the way across the board, but mostly they were unhappy. The people that had, quote, made it, the successful ones, they had seemed to be suffering from what could only be described as some sad idea to find significance in any way they could. It was sad because it was like involved alcohol, sex, divorce, some of them on their fourth marriage, marital affairs, super long work days, and like celebrating even though I'm like 60 years old, I'm still working seven days a week. Oh, they had money and they were admired. They had this large staff, some of them, some of them you tried to retire for a little while because they had no problem with money. But in the end, they would just say something. They'd come back and they would say, uh, well, Paul, it was just too boring. 
And what they really were saying is, there's only so much golf, they would literally say this, only so much golf a guy can play. There's only so many beaches a guy can lay on. And some of you are going, that's heresy, right? But that's what they'd say. They'd go, I've got to work in this. There was just nothing that made a difference other than my job. This is all I know. I had had these long, deep conversations with a few guys that had some deep regret for losing everything, for succeeding at something, at least in their estimation, that didn't matter now. But it's all they had. And some of these were Christians. But there were a couple of guys, real Christians, that have a different story. Oh, they had worked hard, but their job wasn't their life. You know what I mean? And although some had made some real serious money and influence, it didn't seem to be the focus of their life. They had this balance, and the balance was work life and home life, yes, but they worked hard, but they also, they worked hard at being really good dads. Or worked hard at really being good friends or being a part of their church, being uh, loving their community, loving their wives. They poured in to people. I got into a weekly Bible study with some of these Christian men at my work. And I was a Christian, like I said, but with some of these guys, they, they poured Jesus into me. And I, I saw firsthand what they struggled with where they were real Christians. Here's what I perceived about these guys. They loved life. I'm not saying that they had it easy. They faced really hard times just like you and I do. Just like, you know, with health things and uh, difficult life events, relationships, kids making bad decisions, just like everything else. But even in that, they seem to have this, this love for people. These guys and these girls, a few girls, love this. They poured into me, and I could see them pouring into other people at my company, but also in their life. And just as I did Bible study with them, I started kind of to see behind the curtains, you know, how they live life. So I started to think about this question. What if I'm doing something with my life and in the end it doesn't really matter? Today, as we look more at our why we are called to live a life a certain way, we'll also begin to look at the how. And just as importantly, as you look at something, how to do something, we'll talk about how not to do something, both individually and as a group. Let's get started. Some of you are going, I thought we were started. Now that's just my intro. Let, would you pray with me? Bow your head. Mm. God, our Father in heaven, hallowed, hallowed be your name. God, your name is great. And God, we, we just as a church family, we just want to see it me even greater in our sight, even just this little part of northern Colorado. Father, I... I guess what I'm asking for is that you would just reveal who you are in the pages of Scripture and, and reveal to us how we need to respond. Like, what do we need to do, God? Father, I pray that our D3 series would honor you and that you would help me to be able to preach your words faithfully and that the ears, uh, the hearers of this room would hear from you. It is in the great name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we all prayed and said... Amen. Amen. You're going to have to say amen extra loud. I don't know if I mentioned that or not, so, so I can hear it. Today we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church that he had helped start just a few years before. It's a baby church. He's writing them to help them to mature spiritually. What I mean is not just age-wise, but spiritually grow up into spiritual adults, spiritual parents, if you will. 
This church has run into some problems because they have stopped maturing in their faith and it's borne out in how they're actually living their lives, both as individual and even more importantly as the group. Because the group's always dictated by the individual, right? Let's pick it up in verse 10. Paul says this to the church. He says, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. Underline that master builder there. And another builds on it. Talking about that foundation. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. Builds on what? The foundation, right? Catch what Paul is saying here. This Corinthian church was designed by Paul and being built by Paul, at least the foundation, according to the grace that had been given to Paul. Paul makes a big claim here. He says, I've laid a foundation as a master builder. Now check this out where it says master builder. The Greek word there that's translated master builder is where we get the word architect, specifically senior architect. But don't get the picture of a a guy in a nice white shirt with a tie on, a clean computer. No, picture the guy with a hard hat on. He's got a couple of tattoos. He's got a hammer in his hand and he's swinging that hammer. He is building the place. This is his church he's building. Well, it's not really his church, is it? It's Jesus' church, but he is laying the foundation. Paul is giving us of this picture of a guy that designed it, but also is building it. He's constructing the church. Now remember, the word for church in the New Testament never refers to a building. It always refers to the individuals that make up. It's why we meet together. Because right now when I say it's good to be in the house of the Lord and you say what? Amen? It's because it's good to be together the house of the Lord. Now, Paul has done this before. He's built a church before. This is not his first rodeo. He's skilled at it. He he says this is his purpose in life. He says this in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, talking about Paul's purpose in life. He says, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. Now Paul knows the kind of church he is supposed to build and he starts with what? Building a foundation, right? And let's get real. It doesn't matter how good a building appears if the foundation's bad. Baby, it's coming down, right? It it doesn't matter if it's beautiful, if it's perfect. He knows if there's not a solid foundation, something will happen to make this big, beautiful building fall down. So what's the foundation laid by Paul? What is it? Look at it in verse 11. Paul says, For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid. So what's been laid? That foundation is Jesus Christ. Look what Paul did not design the foundation of the church. He's installing it, right? He's installing it. Jesus designed it. Paul is simply taking the plans God gave him and he's implemented. He's built it on this foundation of Jesus Christ, the foundation of the church. What's the foundation of the church? Jesus Christ. What's the foundation of the church? Jesus Christ. What does it mean? Simply put, it means that this. Jesus Christ is the only true foundation of the church. I say that Jesus Christ is the only true foundation of the church. Because you can build a church on a lot of different things. 
even good things. But still, what does it mean to have Jesus be the foundation? Meaning if a church is based on anything but that truth, it will collapse at some point. So what other things are churches built on sometimes? Well, sometimes social change, a social injustice, and they build on that. Now, social change is a good thing. It can result from a church that is built on Jesus Christ. But if you build a church on social change as the foundation, what will happen? It will fall. It will fail. I mean, you can build it on any kind of thing. Like you could say, hey, we're going to build a church on the style of music that we want to do. Will it last? No. Why? Because Jesus is the only foundation. Now, our church is all about that. Not a style of dress, not, a, not anything else. Its firm foundation is Jesus. Now, here's what we want to understand. What is, does that foundation mean? Write this down. It's a little longer. The gospel foundation of the true church is Jesus Christ substitutionary death for the sins of believers oh baby you got to get this i'll say it again the gospel foundation of the true church is jesus christ's substitutionary death talking about on the cross for the sins of believers you can write underneath there if you can fit it in the great exchange the great exchange. Meaning that Jesus took the sins of all believers to the cross. He died a bloody, gruesome death, laid in a tomb, raised on the third day, right? And then he gives us his righteousness. He imputes that into our account. For Christians, for disciples of Christ Jesus, He has taken our sins to the cross and has given us His righteousness. Great exchange. You see how that works? Now the Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He Himself, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the tree. Tree is a pseudonym for the cross. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The wounds that killed Jesus have brought healing to our relationship with Jesus, uh, with God. Does that make sense? Without the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, we would be estranged from God. Literally means you would be an enemy of God. Jesus' death brought peace, brought healing into that relationship. That right there. That's the gospel. And that is what the church is built on. Anything else, the church will fail. This is the foundation that Paul is reminding the Corinthian church that anything you build must be built upon the truth of the gospel of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross for believers, paying for our sin, giving us His righteousness. Then Paul gets real specific and then how and what to build with. He says this in verse 12. He says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw... Each one's work will become obvious. Now look what the, bu the building materials that he mentions here. 
There are two types. Count them. One, two. First, he says gold, silver, costly stones. Quality building materials. Expensive building materials. I'm telling you, you go into Home Depot and you say, where's the gold, silver, and precious stones aisle? They'll go, now what? Right? They don't have that. Listen to me. Gold, silver, and costly stones represent dedicated spiritual service to build the church. Oh, please grasp this. Gold, silver, and costly stones represent dedicated spiritual service to build the church. That's how you build the church, is with that stuff. Being part of a spiritual family, the church pouring into people, pouring into each other, uh, teaching them to obey. What did Jesus say? Everything that I taught you. That's what our marching orders are. So does that mean we teach children? Yes. How about young adults, like preteens, teens? Yes. How about like uh, 30-somethings? What about middle-aged guys like me? Some of you are like, no, that's senior, Paul. You're a senior. <laughs> yes, even seniors too. In Matthew 28, our marching orders, our commission as a church is to build disciples. And how do we build them? How do we build disciples? How do we build Christ followers with dedicated spiritual service to the church? So they're building with gold, silver, precious stone. Each person in the church family doing what they are called to do inside the church. Remember, what is the church? Is it the building? No. Inside the church then would be inside of our relationships. Putting the good stuff in. Building, serving, giving. Building on that foundation of Jesus and the gospel. And But what about the other materials? Now this one's interesting. Wood, hay, straw represent shallow activity with no eternal value. Wood, hay, and straw represent shallow activity with no eternal value. Understand something. We are not talking about even sinful activity here. We're saying if we build the church with shallow materials of no eternal value, it will not work, even if it has the right foundation. Why not? It just won't last. Now, I need you to stay with me here. Here's what I want you to know. You can build a much larger church with wood, hay, and straw. It's light, it's strong, and there's plenty of it. It's cheap. It, it, you can make massive structures with cheap material. And let's just be honest, they look pretty nice. They look pretty nice. You get the analogy that I'm, I'm saying. On, on the other hand, gold, silver, precious stones are usually in short supply. You can't pick those up at Lowe's. And they are expensive. They take lots of effort. Jesus tells us in Luke 10 too, he says this, he says, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. He says, therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. There's a lot of people on their way to hell. 
The church needs to reach them. The time is short. I mean, either they're going to die or Jesus comes back. And either way, we're looking at maybe 80 years max for most of you, probably 30. There's just so few people who will build the church the right way with gold, silver, precious jewels. We should pray for more workers that will lean into the gospel, that will come in and work, meaningful work, not just shallow, yeah, oh, just busyness, oh, just, just killing time, right? Write this down. Jesus asked us to pray the Luke 10-2 prayer. Jesus asked us to pray the Luke 10-2 prayer. God, the harvest is just plentiful, but there's no workers. Would you send workers into the field? Where's the field? It's out there. Who are the workers? We be them. Right? Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Remember, Paul has told us about two types of building materials. Two types that can be used to build on the foundation of the church, Christ Jesus. Good foundation, what materials are you going to use? The costly stuff, the cheap stuff, why not use the cheap stuff and make it big and it won't cost us much. Why not you do that? Look what Paul says in the second half of verse 13. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. Now what is Paul talking about? How is fire going to reveal this? This is important to understand. What fire is going to test the church? The end? Like we just, we just started, or we just got done preaching through Revelation, like the end of the world? And you could go, well that would reveal it, right? But that's actually not what this is talking about. The end will reveal it, but Paul's talking about something else. Write this down. The fire is God's discerning judgment. God's discerning judgment. And this is important to understand because remember, God's discerning judgment. What is that? Well, God's all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows what's built, what you're building with. John the Baptist baptizing people. You remember he says, I baptize people with water, but the one who's coming after me, I'm not fit to tie that guy's sandals. And he says, that guy will baptize not with water, but with fire, fire. That's what this is talking about. And the only precious materials, the saints' dedicated service to the kingdom is what sir, will survive the discerning judgment of God. You could say the discerning judgment of Jesus. Paul promises in verse 14, he says, if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. Now, we could preach an hour right here. And you're always going, well, well Paul, you... You actually always preach an hour. No, I'm saying another hour just on this verse right here. Why? Because God's reward is so big. He's the one that designed happiness. He is the one that designed you. He knows what the reward should be. He's saying, if you build with the right kind of things, you will receive a reward here. God rewards his people. He really rewards them. But look at verse 15. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Our work is not a matter of our salvation here. That's not what it's talking about. We don't earn our salvation, right? But rather a result of it. 
What it is saying is that if you build with the cheap stuff, even if it's giant, even if it's beautiful, even if it's successful, check this out, in the world's eyes, it will burn up under the discerning judgment of Jesus as he looks at the church. Look at the picture of Jesus being being this building inspector. Like you finish it, the foundation is fine, then he's going to say, hey, let's walk through it together. And you go, okay, and you're thinking like he's going to check the wall outlets. Is it the right colors, the door straight? No, he's got a torch. And he, he puts the torch to everything that will catch on fire. You go, wait, wait, these are all my dreams. I worked so hard. And he's saying, yeah, but see, I warned you to only build with gold silver and precious stones, the quality stuff. But you, you built with wood, hay, straw. He says, I will test it. It's not when, it's I will. I mean, it's when, not if. Our church, Bentry Church, has been built on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. It's the only way to get, get to God through his substitutionary death on the cross. Amen? That's our foundation. Amen? And that's the way, the way it has been since the start, since before we started preaching. But uh, the first week we said, this is what it's going to be about. It's going to be about Jesus. But here's what I found out as I look back at our history, specifically bent trees as a church. And I look back on those churches around us and throughout church history. What seems to work and be successful uh, to people in a church is not necessarily what God thinks of success. This may hurt some of us. Another way to say it is this. How do we tell if we are building what God wants us to build? Or if it's what he thinks he wants. We think he wants. The results you get. Here's what I want you to know. We measure what we think is important to our success. This is just truth. We measure what we think is important to our success. And that's the smart thing to do, isn't it? At least in part. I mean, individually, we do that for our lives. But as a church, churches typically have two, maybe three numbers, sometimes even four kind of base measurements, a gauge, if you will, to measure if you're getting the job done at building the church. Like we measure to see, are we successful or not? I would think all the churches measure at least two numbers right off the bat, uh, Nickels and noses, right? Nickels, how much money is given. Noses, how many people. That'd be your noses, right? Now, you might be cynical, but those numbers are important numbers to the church and can tell people's at least some level of spiritual maturity. They do tell at least a little bit of the success of the group as well. Those are important numbers. If no one is coming, then you don't really have a church. You can talk about a church, you can have a building, but if no one's coming, they're not coming. I tell leaders, hey, look, if no one's following you, you're just out for a walk, right? You're just out for a walk. Nobody's following you. And if there's no giving, then you can tell a couple of things. People don't believe in what you're doing or they don't care about the vision. They don't buy into it. Why? Because they ain't writing the check or they can't give. That's important to know too. Like they're going through some financial uh, strain and we need to know that as a family, right? Like we need to surround people and take care of them. But we see that their faith is maturing in that they give. 
people that are mature in their faith. They simply give of their time and of their money. Some churches, us included, would track other things like the number of baptisms each year. That's a very important number. Those who would stand up and say, yeah, I'm with Jesus. I'm with Bentry. These are, these are my people right here. That's an important number. Are people publicly getting baptized and saying, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. Now, we track the numbers of people at Bentry serving on teams like guest services or children's ministry. Uh, we track real membership. We track real members, those who've said, yes, I place myself, I place my family, listen, underneath the leadership of the shepherding elder board. Like, like Mark, he's a shepherding elder. I'm under him. Or, or, or Ralph or any number of the guys, right? I place myself, my family under their leadership. People that will join are saying, I am a part of the family. People that won't join are going, ah, I like you guys a lot. Those are all good things to track. They are good things. What are we missing? I think the question should be this. Are we measuring what God thinks is important? Are we measuring what God thinks is important? I'm not trying to be cute. It comes naturally. <laughs> like, are we missing what else might be important for our success? Like, what else do we need to measure? Well, life change is one of the big, big ways, but how do you do that? Like, like me, I can, I can get to know you, a few of you, a little bit. I can spend time with you, but I can't spend time with everybody. I can't get to know everybody if you're growing or not because you can fake it to me or you can start sliding back into sin and, and put up a false front. I may not know. And then some people just kind of disappear. I go, like, where'd they go? We put shepherding elders in place to help shepherd you, to watch out for you, to watch for the strays that walk off. But even they can only guess at your spiritual growth over time. One of the things we need to do is measure spiritual growth. Each Christian should measure their own spiritual growth. Each Christian should measure their own spiritual growth. That's very important. Regularly. One of the things you'll see us develop as a church are ways to help you do that and a way to help you track that. And we will track it with you. Measure your own spiritual growth. Now, we as a church are going to measure your spiritual growth too, both as a macro, meaning all of us, the big picture, but you individually. Where are you in your spiritual maturity? Am I spending time in God's Word? That can be way, one way to, to measure my own spiritual growth. You go, well, yeah, no, 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 no. What I said is, are you spending time in God's Word daily? Well, not every day. Like I hit once every three months. And am I, am I repentant of sin? Am I a part of a community? Yes, we should ask, are we going to church uh, each week unless we're sick or out of town? Uh, but more than that, uh, like, are you known by people in this church. And do you know people in this church? Not just like, oh yeah, I recognize him. That, that, I mean, there is a community in the church. Do you recognize people that way? Like church with inside the church. Is there people that really, are there people that really know me? 
By the way, here's a great way to know that for yourself uh, right now. Are there people that you celebrate with this church, in this church, when something good happens? Like you've been waiting, maybe it's for them to get a job or a house or get results back from the doctor. You've been praying and, and it's a great news and you go, woohoo, give them a hug and you know them. You go, man, we've been praying for that. Or are there are people that really are suffering and, and you're suffering with them because they're facing some challenge or some pain or they're going through the, just the grist their marriage is falling apart or their kids are making boneheaded decisions and you're trying to walk with them. Or, or this, this is a real simple one. Like you come to church and you sit down and you go, man, I was really wanting to see them because my heart has just been knit to them and they're not there so you're kind of bummed. You know what I mean? Like, man, I was really wanting to see them. Are we measuring what God says is important? Life changes because if we only measure attendance and giving, check this out, without measuring life change, we will begin to pursue systems that will grow those two numbers, attendance and giving. Those are not bad things, right? Those are good things, but we'll start to grow systems to manipulate those two numbers because here's what happened in the overall church over the last 30 years. I'm talking the big C church across the United States. By the way, I've seen this happen firsthand and I've, I've lived through this and I'm somewhat ashamed of what my part of the definition of success. Success for a church is all about attracting mo the most people on a Sunday morning event. Now, the, being attractional is not a sin. But to build your life to say success is all about the numbers is. There's been this church planting movement over the last few years and I've, I've been a coach on that and I love our church planters that are planting all over Colorado and ours in northern Colorado. I shared about Christ Church the last couple of weeks how they're getting going. And I've said, this is how you be attractional. You want to attract people. And being attractional is not a bad thing. But listen, we can make it all about being attractional. And we can say that's the definition of success. Successful churches, we can say something like this. We can say, oh, if you really want to be a successful church, consider a church where you give the most options for everybody. Be attractional. You know, a church that has the perfect music that fits their desires. And you are greeted by a young, cool, hip, good-looking people. Call them guest services. Successful churches have the right youth and the right children's program, ministry, and teach your kids. They need to have this cool building, you know, the kind of hip building and churchy, but not too churchy. Look at the kids' area. Make sure that it looks like a play place at a McDonald's or maybe a little Disney-esque, right? And the teenagers need to have this cool youth pastor that is their best friend, Bible, uh, 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 Bible scholar. Also, they need to have this kind of counselor's degree on top of that. And success is the pastor and the staff need to have this cool look. The cool look, skinny jeans are better if you have a pastor that can wear them. By the way, that ain't going to happen. I'm a Wrangler man. Skinny jeans, not knocking them. Success has been called the surfaces should be at convenient times and multiply the times and locations to choose from. Maybe put one on a Thursday night, put one on a Saturday. Because guess what? Some people don't like to go to church on Sundays. Well, that's good. Let's make church about them, right? 
And, and do this, make church about an hour, that's good. Make the service cross between the talk, kind of a, a cross between a TED talk, a stand-up comic, a counselor, and a little bit of inspirational speaking. Don't preach though, whatever you do. To be successful, the main thing is that people feel good about themselves. That's what we've taught people. To be inspired to do, just do better. The real answer is when you, we need to make it all about you and find the real you inside you. Just give people a little bit of the Bible. Uh, don't preach anything that's too controversial or make people feel uncomfortable. Definitely use scripture, but just use a little bit so people don't feel uncomfortable. Don't do any of the awkward scriptures we've told them. Keep it light on Sundays. People will learn how to grow on their own somewhere, maybe in their small group. Do that. Don't go heavy. Here's the thing. Most of that stuff is good stuff. It's not necessarily bad, except the skinny jeans part. I'll never look good. Like a lot of it's smart stuff. Like you want to have an environment that's welcoming. You do want good music. I love our music. You want an excellent children's program, a great youth program. But here's the deal. You can get good at all that stuff. And it can easily turn about thinking into thinking the church is like some kind of restaurant or like a business. Listen, we are not a business. Like it's all consumer driven out there thinking if we do everything right with the look and the feel, then everyone will come and, and if they come they might write a check and if they write a check we can we can make it even cooler and we said that's how to make mature christians the danger is that you'll fail to grow individual christians up in christ disciples get left out discipleship gets left out the numbers look good it looks successful but there's little to no spiritual growth the church starts to think about growth in just of numbers and not in relationships it starts to be about systems. And listen to me, it's not, it starts to not be about people. It's got to be about people. Here's the real problem of, of the church in the United States. A ton of churches over the last 30 years, they've grown tremendously in numbers and programs and buildings, but sometimes it's just a mile wide and an inch deep. It's like, don't look at the man behind the curtain because you'll find out there's nothing really going on. What's crazy to me is that there are now churches, check this out, there are now churches that deny Jesus' substitutionary atonement, but they go, oh, but there are some churches that have showed us how to, if we just do this and this and we look cool, we don't even have to believe in Jesus, and then we could be a mega church. And look at the, the success we have. Baloney! Baloney! What's crazy to me is we thought that was success. In the modern church, what's largely happened over the last 30 years is that little churches, listen carefully, little churches in the 1950s and 60s quit preaching the gospel. But they never had a facelift, if you will, right? They just kind of were married to a style, but they quit preaching the deep things of God. They quit making uh, disciples. It was all about a form of religion of just going, well, we do it the old way. Give me that old time religion. And I think that was the problem is they had a bunch of religion. They were married to a way of doing church and not preaching. I'm talking about old style little churches. Now there's old little churches that are preaching the gospel. I'm not, I'm not after them. Nothing wrong with being little. Amen? Amen? 
But they quit preaching and teaching and discipling. Some of those churches, uh, you know, they hadn't updated stuff. You walk in and it's like 1951. And then what happened is a cool, hip church came in. A new way of doing church with cool music and, and all the young people and some of the older folks went to the new church. I know the church I was a part of as an executive pastor. We did not mean to, but our powerful growth, phenomenal growth, was largely fueled by getting people to come over to our church from little awkward dying churches. And the truth is, we simply did church better. We were better at it. At least people liked it more. And we called that success. But here's what I noticed. Everyone pointed to the large crowds as success. But few people ever pointed to life change. Any spiritual maturity happening. Because the truth was, in the last 30 years, the American church, not a lot of spiritual maturity was going on. Let's just face it. Like even good churches worked on getting people saved. But the problem has been, once they were saved, it was just like pat them on the back and go, man, I hope to see you in heaven. Like we didn't tell them anything else. Like, you're done, that's all there is. And they go, but I'm still like addicted to cocaine. Like you go, ah, yeah, that's awkward. Let me go on to someone else, right? Like we said last week, our job doesn't end with someone's salvation and baptism. It just begins. And let me tell you, let me tell you, Bent Tree has been guilty of this. Preaching the gospel without building disciples. Oh Lord, forgive me. But we're doing it now. We're doing it now. Now I don't mean to say that we have it all figured out. Um, like the goal is not to have a pendulum swing back and say we've got to now do outdated music and put gold shag carpet down the middle aisle and me wear a light blue leisure suit oh god help us what I'm saying is that we have to work on turning our church into a place for Christians to become mature through preaching, teaching and discipleship groups yes we can be attractional yes we can have great music but when Christians begin to really mature, they become a bright light in the world where God put them. Listen to me. That's where evangelism happens. A student that is growing in Christ becomes a magnet of hope for those who are in their school around them in the dark. A person growing in their faith becomes a bright light of hope and joy to those in the workplace. Those producing spiritual fruit in their life offer hope to those they work with. It's just the way it works. I mean, dads and moms that are mature in their faith start pouring Jesus into their children with home devotionals. Little kids become followers of Christ. The older kids and the teenagers are discipled through their dads and moms. Notice I said dads and moms. They are not having to get their pastor to teach them about Jesus. They are teaching and loving Jesus because their dads and moms simply did that home and get this we have a few spiritual orphans in this church where we see adults we see adults have kind of let them down they're just or maybe they're not even christians and they're christians and but these spiritual orphans go i don't have anybody to teach me and then we've got spiritual parents in this church without kids at home anymore 
that you can pour into some spiritual orphans. Think about pouring into the life of a teenager who loves Jesus. They just don't know how to live for him yet. You think that might be powerful life change? When people see adults grow in their discipleship, they start reaching out to spiritual orphans. It's just what happens in the church. One of the shepherding elders told me this last week, a member of their mini church said, hey, all this D3 stuff, um, you know, is that something uh, you're wanting us to go door to door on and, uh, like, uh, and knock and go, hey, you know, hi, my name's Paul. Do you know Jesus? Now, certainly, I'm not wanting you to say no to going to tell your neighbors about Jesus. I would say, yes, that's always a great idea. But what I'm talking about is growing baby Christians into spiritual adults that in turn share the love of Jesus in the places they do life with. That's the way you reach people for Jesus, not just the attractional part. Let me close with just a few thoughts. I mentioned those Bible studies that I started to attend at my workplace before I was a pastor. They were real studies, like we got into God's Word, but it wasn't just what we studied, it was how we studied it and the way we went about it. It was brothers in Christ, it was all guys at this point, and we were honest with each other about sin in our lives, the temptations we face, the triggers even that we knew could send us into temptation and into sin. We held each other accountable to be good daddies to spend time uh, daily in God's Word. Like we'd ask each other, did we hit every day in the week? And if not, why not? And we held each other accountable to make sure that we got to church each week. By the way, it was in Dallas. And I didn't live in Dallas. I lived in a little town. And so none of us went to the same church. Wasn't that cool that we're all the church though? Eventually, I started leading uh, those the Bible studies for the people in my workplace. And what's funny to think about now is that it was in those Bible study meetings years ago that I started to sense maybe God was calling me to something different, something deeper, maybe different career path. Now, I'm not knocking anybody's career path. This is just me. Some of those people that I'd done those Bible studies with said, I see something in you, Paul. I see something in you, and you need to pursue that. My brothers encouraged me to do more in church. So Bibi and I started to lead a Bible study. We just started uh, Sunday mornings. We called it Sunday school. Imagine that. We started to pour into families our age, and that was the start for me in the process of of both of us, Bibi and I, sensing that God was calling us as a family into full-time vocational ministry. Now, not long after that, I began meeting with my pastor. I, I asked him, I have this sense, this uncomfortableness uh, that I'm supposed to do something for God, maybe even be a pastor. And I got a little throw up in the back of my throat, you know, like, pat, like I couldn't say it, like a, a pastor. But I didn't know what to do, Right? I wanted to do something for God, but I didn't know what. I didn't know how to proceed. I was teaching this Sunday school class, and, and my pastor, Brother Al Draper, he listened sometimes. He, he's, he was my pastor at that point. He'd been there years. He, he lasted 35 years as the pastor of that church. He's retired now. Brother Al, if you're listening, I love you. Um, he said this. He gave me this advice. He says, you know what? You don't have to know what to do in the long run. You don't have to have all the answers to obey God. He said, see, Paul, what God is looking for is someone who will surrender, someone who will obey me. He said, love the people you're with. Love them well. 
Pour Jesus into those people around you, your kids especially, your wife especially. God will show you what next. He'll say, here's what's next. So what, that's what, exactly what Bibi and I did. So we served in our local church. We loved those people around us as best we could. And listen, we're horrible at it, but we did it. We loved them. And a warning, a couple of years after that conversation with Brother Al, I responded to what I sensed God's calling was to do. I left my career and took a job at a church as an executive pastor that was meeting in a high school. Uh, you know what I love? Seeing changed lives. And specifically, I love seeing lives changed by the power of the Holy Spirit of preaching, teaching, discipleship of Jesus Christ into people's life. Like the Holy Spirit of God working in someone in their literal future is changed. Their trajectory is changed. And you know what else I love? I love you. Like I do. I love you. It's why I do what I do, because I love Jesus, but I love you. I'm called to you, to serve you, to lead you. That right there will last for all eternity. Not my love, but the, the growth uh, that you're doing, that you're pulling in, you're pouring into the body of Christ, that gold, silver, precious stones, that dedicated service of God. This is my family, and I'm going to love everybody around me. Guess what happens when that happens? People start to see it and go, I want some of that. I want some of that. That right there will last for all eternity. I'm so happy I've gotten to play a tiny part in that. What if you succeed in life? And I mean, you're wildly successful. What if you succeed in life at something, but then it turns out in the end that it didn't really matter at all. Maybe Jesus is calling you to mature in your faith to be successful at that. I think he wants you to start being a part of discipleship of other people, pouring Jesus in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I did mean it. I, I, I do love this church. I love each and every one. God, I feel so inadequate to lead these people. And yet you called me, so I say yes. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now that you would uh, continue their growth. If they're infants, God, grow them into uh, children. If they're children, grow them into young adults. If they're young adults, grow them into uh, parents, spiritually mature people that can lead other people. God, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now that they have been a Christian for a long time, but they're still spiritual infants. God, I'm sorry for the not leading them well and pouring Jesus in. God, I, I'm sorry as a church that we have gotten people to the point of salvation, baptized them, but then we kind of left them hanging, like going, I hope, I hope you get the message, but not doing anything else. God, just as a church, we pray that you would make us into this church that, that would disciple people and grow people up strong in their faith that they would in turn lead other people to you. God, I pray for the spiritually mature in this room to begin to pour into the spiritually immature, those along the spectrum. God, help us as a church to say yes to you. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.